would you please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 1. And I know it says verses 1 through 18. Actually, we're going to skip down a little bit for the uh, sake of time. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading here? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I would invite you just to follow along as I'm reading this passage. It begins as follows. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then if you skip down to verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was owned, but his own did not receive him. And then finally, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you join me as we begin with prayer? Father, it is our request that as we gather this morning in your name, that you would fulfill the promise of your word, that you would be here in our midst. That, Lord, we don't simply come for music and for talking and all the rest. We come ultimately, Lord, because it is our desire to know you. It is our desire to experience you. And you said that when we come together in this kind of community, that there is a, a moving and working of your Holy Spirit that is unique in our lives and accomplishes things on a greater degree, Lord. So we, we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, Lord. After we desire that right relationship with you, you promised that you would fill us. And so we give you this time, Lord, and trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but actually it's somewhat surprising to most how little space is given in the Gospels to the account of Jesus' birth. I mean, when you talk about the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we have a total of two and a half chapters, 30 years covered by 160 verses. Now, if you look at the last three years of his life, we have 88 chapters, 3,500 verses. In fact, half of that deals simply with the last week of Jesus' earthly life and earthly ministry. We call it the, his Passion Week. But it's interesting to me because maybe in a way, because there is not a great deal of information, it can kind of explain what I call the, the, the Ricky Bobby kind of view of Jesus. I don't know if you saw the movie Talladega Nights. Um, I think it's one of the uh, comedic masterpieces of the 21st century. But uh, Ricky Bobby explains over Christmas dinner a, a, a fair of all those favorite Christmas things, KFC, Taco Bell, and all the rest. And he's sitting there with his, his incredibly dysfunctional family, I think even more dysfunctional than my family. And he, talks about, he starts praying over the meal, and he prays to what he calls the Christmas Jesus. 
as he says, the eight pounds, six ounce infant Jesus in golden fleece diapers who don't even know a word yet, so cuddly and yet omnipotent Jesus with baby Jesus power. <laughs> well, anyway, they have a big discussion about the different kinds of Jesuses you can pray to, but the point is that somehow we have in our culture reduced the birth of Jesus into almost a soundbite. I mean, it's not that I have something against creches or a nativity plays and all the other things that we have during the Christmas season, but we have to understand that most of these representations aren't historically accurate. We, we conflate the wise men and the shepherds and everything together in, in one moment when, in fact, we're talking about at least a period of two years and a variety of different things taking place. And most importantly, it, we miss the fact that the manger is not the where the story of Jesus began. It wasn't Nazareth. It wasn't when the child is even conceived. It even predates all of that. The story of Jesus begins, and that's why I've begun by reading out of John's gospel, because it begins really before time, matter, and space. John's gospel, in part, is, was written to kind of fill in many of the gaps that weren't addressed in the other gospel narratives. And Jesus, John starts to tell us that the story of Jesus was not first conceived in Mary's womb, or in Matthew's gospel, but rather it was conceived before time, before space, before matter was ever created. It was conceived in the mind of the eternal God for His purposes and His will. That there is therefore a certain degree of ministry, as Paul said to Timothy. He said, great is the mystery of godliness. God appeared in flesh. <laughs> I mean, that's a great mystery. It is something that, because it's a mystery, because it's incomprehensible, and I always get a kick out of people who want to be able to have a, a scientific, rational explanation for the unexplainable. And sometimes we try by talking circles. But he starts off by saying, you have to understand that if you try to uh, pull out some kind of calculation and explain how God conceived within a woman's womb and came into the world like you and me, it is something that lies outside of the grasping of the human intellect and the human mind. But before God ever spoke the words, let there be light in Genesis 1-3, and launched the universe into existence, there was, he tells us, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, most of us know that the original Greek word that's used there is logos. And, and logos had a very specific meaning by this time in the Greek mind. They saw the logos uh, from a secular point of view as being kind of that organizing power and dynamic of the universe. That the logos to them was the one who uh, sustained the universe. He maintained the universe. He was the one who made everything work. It was that unseen power that they didn't know what it is. And John borrows that terminology and begins by saying, in the very beginning there was the Logos. And every Greek and Jewish reader would have nodded in agreement and said, yes, absolutely, there is an intelligent design to the universe in which we live. Somebody created it. And then he goes on further to expand, and that word, that Logos, was with God. And then he says, and the Word, the Logos, was God. 
And with that, John has now introduced a completely new concept. That he was in the beginning with God, and through him all things were made. So that it was he who spoke those first words, let there be light. And in that moment, not only was the universe created, but language was created, at least in a form that you and I could understand. But then finally, in verse 14, he brings all of this together by telling us, and that word, that logos, became flesh. He became a man, in other words, and he made his dwelling among us. That not only did he come to us in the form of humanity, but he became part of us. Literally, it means he pitched his tent in the midst of our camp. But the implication is that he suddenly wove himself into the fabric of the human experience, sharing with us in our struggles and conflicts, as well as observing our joys and our victories, so that this very strange thing happens. Again, as Paul said, it's a mystery. How do we explain that someone could come into the world and be fully God and be fully man? And yet that's exactly what the gospel writers and here in this case, John, are trying to say to us. But John says in verse 10 of that same passage, this problem, that though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And the idea of not recognizing not, means more than not being able to look at him and say, I know who you are. But being at such an aversion to who he is that there's a lack of understanding. It's not being able to grasp who someone is, to look at them and not to really know who they are. They, they were made by him. They could look in the proverbial mirror and see that they were identical to him in many ways, and yet they didn't see how they were connected at all. Then, in other words, he's saying to us, in effect, that Jew and Gentile alike had a picture of what God would look like and what he would be like if he ever were, in fact, to become a man. They lived in that kind of world where there were men who claimed to be God. You had kings and emperors and pharaohs who all claimed that they had, at their enthronement, become the Son of God. And the most of the religions of that era, as in our own, were saying that you could be, attain godhood, you could experience immortality by doing good works or by doing brave deeds or by personal victory. The Jews said good works, the Greeks said great deeds, brave deeds, the, the Romans said by being victorious over your enemies. You can attain unto this idea of victory. And yet into this you have this odd duck of religion called Christianity that says none of those things will work. Now part of the problem is that they did not recognize him because like all of us we have mental pictures. We have ideas in our own head of how something is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. You and I go through this on a regular basis. You, you can't take a vacation without anticipating beforehand how that's going to be. And I have discovered to my disappointment that my vacations are much more pleasurable before I actually take them. <clears throat> you know, there are things that I do not anticipate. 
as my wife and I, had, we were going to actually speak on, on the island, the big island, or excuse me, the island of Oahu uh, a few years back, and iPhone had just come out with their map uh, app on their new phone, and so I, we, our plane was delayed four hours, and so we got in late at night, um, and, but I said, no problem, I'll just put the address of the condo we're staying into my phone, and it'll lead us to it. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, when I began to recognize the same places over and over and over again, I realized that the app was taking me in circles. And the problem was, they said, you'll recognize it because of the red roof. It was 2 in the morning, there was no moon, no stars in the sky, and I couldn't tell if it had a brown, red, black, yellow, or blue roof. I couldn't make anything out of it. And I remember feeling so absolutely lost because I had been misled by the app which they later pulled because I was not alone. <laughs> the only satisfaction I got was the guy who made it got fired. But other than that, I, it was because <laughs> I wanted to kill him. <laughs> But sometimes we don't recognize the most basic things around us because in our mind we formulated a different image. And men do that with God. People do that even today with Jesus. Ricky Bobby did that with his Christmas Jesus. That we can form in our minds this image, this picture of the way something is supposed to be or how even our life is supposed to flow. And rarely, if ever, does reality match the experience. And so here Christianity comes on the scene and it doesn't bear resemblance to anything that the world's religions and leaders of the day were looking for. Its founder, born in anonymity and, and in poverty, he was generally penniless and, and powerless with no real friends, whether you're talking about high places or low places, although he had more that liked him in low places than high places. He lived in a culture that honored pride and power, despised humility and weakness, and he was born in the humblest of circumstances, so much so that his parents were so powerless, they couldn't even provide him with adequate space for him to be born. It was a cave converted into an animal pen. And even when he comes to claim his throne, he doesn't come with armies or upon a gilded chariot. It says simply in the prophet, he comes humble riding on a donkey. It's almost as if Zechariah was saying, you'll recognize the Messiah when he comes because you won't recognize him. There will be nothing, Isaiah said, about him that will really stand out and be distinct. You won't be able to tell by his wardrobe or by his entourage or by any other thing that you might think. There will be no crown. There will be no bejeweled body. There will be no stature, heads and shoulders above the rest. There will be no armaments, no armies. He just comes to you meek. He comes to you in gentleness. And nevertheless, just when his movement is, is seeming to get some positive traction with large crowds proclaiming him the Messiah, he dies. He dies prematurely. He dies horribly. He dies cruelly. He dies painfully. 
But in the eyes of his contemporaries, most importantly, he died shamefully, which is a concept that escapes us. Because 2,000 years after the fact, crosses have become symbols and emblems, pieces of jewelry. They're things that we look honorably to. We see it on the top of a church building and we identify it as being a place that has at least some semblance of alliance or allegiance to Jesus Christ. But in their day, it had another symbol. It was the symbol of the most shameful, painful death for the worst of criminals. It was the lowliest reward for the worst of criminals. And suddenly you didn't find on the next day the disciples were walking out in the street wearing crosses around the neck and saying, we're the Jesus people. You know? No, we find them someplace else. For this and a whole lot of other regions, John simply concludes that not only did they not recognize him because they had a completely different concept of what the Messiah was going to be, but it says when he came to his own, they did not receive him either. Because they did not recognize him, they were not welcoming him. And when he says, when he came to his own, I've often thought in my mind, I've heard it said, well, he came to the Jews and they didn't receive him. But the point is that if he is the creator of all things, his own are you and me and everyone else. He came to humanity. Humanity didn't recognize him and didn't therefore receive him. Think about that for a moment. How did you make the journey to come to Jesus? Did you someday just wake up and say, I know who he is. I'm going to believe. Or was there some kind of epiphanal, revelatory experience you had where your eyes were open? It may not have been dramatic as the Apostle Paul. He was so hard-headed, God had to kick him off a horse and strike him down and blind him before he could really stop and listen to what God said. But in some maybe lesser way, God stopped you in your tracks, stunned you, staggered you for a moment, and then you stepped back and went, what is this? And suddenly the curtain opened, the scales fell from your eyes, and suddenly the one whom you gave little interest in, little concern, suddenly became to you God and King, Lord and Master. This is what happens to everyone who comes to Jesus, even his closest followers, because we do read that after his death, Matthew records all the disciples forsook him and fled. That is until he repeatedly started popping up alive and well. And it was then that one of his most skeptical of followers puts the puzzle together in a way that began to make sense to the rest of them as well. In fact, John records it this way in John 20, 24. He says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He had come a week earlier. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, it says, His disciples we're in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Here was the missing piece. Jesus was not merely a man. He, he was not the son of Mary and Joseph. He was not a prophet. He was not a miracle worker. He was not a great teacher. Even though he did all of those things, that was not who he was. He was God. Albeit he was a God robed in very common human flesh, as Isaiah would say, he had nothing to attract us to him. There was no comeliness, as he puts it, that we would desire him. He wouldn't have walked through a crowd and everybody would have stepped back and said, wow, there's a handsome man. Or there's a tall man or there's a strong. They wouldn't have, there'd be nothing that would have stood out until that veil is opened and suddenly Thomas has a new portrait of Jesus. You're not dead. You're alive. You're not man. You're God. You're my master. My life belongs to you. As the Nicene Creed simply put it, that he was very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. What's surprising to us, and I think what John is trying to communicate in the opening of his letter is this was really the plan of God from the very beginning. When the writer of Hebrews uh, says in Hebrews 10, 5, he says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. In other words, God wasn't looking for those animal sacrifices that were being brought to the temple day after day after day for millennia. He said, That wasn't what you desired, but a body you prepared me. The implication is very clear. My body was simply given to me to fulfill what sacrifice and offering of animals could never satisfy. That's why when he comes to John the Baptist at the initiation of his public ministry, we might call it his coming out, and he's baptized in the Jordan, and John sees him coming from a distance and says, Behold! The Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That John, in a moment of divine revelation, has his eyes open and he sees Jesus as not just this man coming to be baptized, but in fact, the one who had been created by God and placed here to die for the sins of the world. That even his death upon the cross was pre-planned. In fact, Revelation 13, 8, it says, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. That in the very moment when he says, let there be light and everything comes into existence, in that moment of revelation was also from the heart of God. And let this one become man and die for the sins of the world the sins which they had not yet even had the chance to commit. 
I like the way Max Lucado put it. I just came across this this morning in my reading where he said, it wasn't a tragic surprise, a, a knee-jerk response to a world plummeting towards destruction. It wasn't a patch job or a stopgap measure. It was the Lord's will to crush him, quoting Isaiah 53. The cross was drawn into the original blueprint, written into the script, the moment the man with the mallet placed the spike against the wrist of God, a master plan was fulfilled. And it was not a secret plan. As much as we talk about it being mysterious, as much as we talk about it being difficult for the human mind to wrap itself around, and certainly not there is no human language which can adequately explain Yet it was not something that was secreted from man. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. It's estimated that there are around 300 separate prophecies in the Old Testament, all foretelling about Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His second coming. Which is why we find when we read the New Testament, we find statements repeatedly made like those in Matthew where he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. Jesus said, I have not come to obliterate the law, I have come to fulfill it, to satisfy what it was speaking of, so that not only are the prophetic messages foretelling him, but even those boring parts called Leviticus with its sacrifices and all this stuff, are all portraits of what he was going to accomplish and fulfill through the giving of his sacrifice. That Jesus' life was not imitation of Leviticus. Leviticus was in foretelling what Jesus would do. They were to be signs. In fact, Isaiah put it that way in Isaiah 7.14. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The word sign, it's interesting, the Hebrew word is oaths. Sounds like our oath. It means a signal or, or a token, a, a miracle, a, a proof. Literally, an omen promised as a pledge of something that is predicted to take place. In the same way, we, we can drive down the freeway and we see a sign that's rather serpentine lines on it, and it says, tight curves ahead, or falling rocks, and stock prices. You, you see these things, and, and suddenly you know what lies ahead. Something is coming in the future, and we discover that they are predictable, so we respond in kind because we know by experience that these things can generally be trusted. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you signs. I'm going to litter human history with sign after sign after sign after sign so that you can recognize Him. What went wrong? <laughs> well, Paul writes later in, in Romans 11, he says, the Jews in particular, who said we're in a special position with God. They, to them, he said, have been given the oracles of God. They were the ones who were entrusted with all of these signs, with all the messages. And he said, but what they did is rather than trying to understand the signs and see how they would be fulfilled, they used them to establish their own righteousness. And they turned away from the righteousness of God. 
Now, I don't mean to be harsh and critical of the Jews because in doing that, we condemn ourselves. This becomes our issue. How many of us have been guilty of looking for signs of something that we want? Lord, you know, I don't have money for rent this week, but I just pray, Lord, that you provide. We start calling people. We start checking the mailbox. We start, going, we start doing everything. We go back to our bank account and see if maybe we made a mistake and maybe by some miracle some money's going to flow in there and all sorts of wonderful things are going to happen. We start looking for the ways in which God is going to do it. And yet it's not that God doesn't leave us without signs. Sometimes He just leaves us a sign right here. We'll turn to His Word and He just says, trust me. Just trust me. Well, yes, Lord, I trust you, but give me a sign. And let it have dollar marks on it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the way we react. We want a tangibility to it. And God says, but there's nothing more tangible than me. And there's no surer place to put your trust than in me. You want tangibility? You have it. I spoke to them for generations about who I would be and what I would look like, and I drew this portrait of myself. And in the beginning, it was a, a, a simple sketch, but as time went on, I filled in the detail, and I colored it, and I outlined it, so that when he comes, King Herod goes and calls in the rabbis and said, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they take him right to the very text. But you, Bethlehem, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. What an interesting statement. How were they to understand that when Micah first spoke that? In a way, it was almost as if God saying, the Messiah is going to come, but it's going to be a little bit difficult for you to grasp because He is contemporary and yet He is forever. He is contemporary, but He comes from eternity, is what He just said. But you will know because He will be born in the city of Bethlehem. And the response of Herod is to dispatch the soldiers to kill every child under two years of age. And we'll talk about how he came to that decision. Because he believed it. His fear was more filled with faith than those who had faith were filled with fear. It's an interesting dichotomy. But we find Isaiah saying things to us, like in Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. God with us or with us is God. <laughs> it's a... Again, I mean, I, I can just imagine how they must have twisted their mind over that. I, I know how um, many times Jewish scholars try to twist what it says and to get around this. And they translate, well, a young maiden shall be with a child. And you sit back and go, well, there's a sign for you. A woman gets pregnant. When's the last time you ever saw that happen? You know, it, it, no, it, it's a sign. It's distinct. And the word virgin here is literally a woman who has never known a man, just as Mary said, but I've never known a man. But she will have never known a man, and yet she will be impregnated. She will 
have a child and she'll give birth and it will be not a daughter, it will be a son. And the thing that will set him apart is we'll recognize that he is God with us. That he is God who has chosen to set his tent in the midst of the human camp and become one with us. to share with us in all of the difficulties. That Isaiah would go on in chapter 9 to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, the rulership of the world will be upon him. And he will be called Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Again, I can't help but wonder what, what the Isaiah the prophet would have thought of that. And generations afterwards, as they said, how does this fit into our concept? The idea of God becoming a man and being all of those things, being all fully God and fully man in our midst. How do we foresee that? That just doesn't make any sense. The closest example I can I can draw from my own life experience was when early in my ministry I was teaching at a Bible school and, and uh, I was teaching on, on uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 and, and, and just musing with the students saying, you know, it's really interesting here because it speaks about the Persians, the Iranians today, who are going to be leading this assault against Israel. And yet today, I said in this time, in the 1970s, they're Israel's only ally in the Middle East. The Shah of Iran supplies them with oil. He's a close ally of the United States and all these things. And I said, and I, said I don't understand how they are going to become this antagonist when at this time they're the protagonist of Israel. How does this change take place? And shortly after that, the Shah of Iran was overthrown and the Ayatollah Khomeini became the ruler of the land and suddenly they became their greatest enemy like that. And I remember it struck me so powerfully that just because I can't see it now doesn't mean that it can't happen now. That God doesn't need to go through the lengthy and arduous processes that you and I have to go through when we want to change or alter or adjust anything. That God simply speaks the word. Keep in mind, there was nothing and then he said, let there be something and suddenly there was something. And people say, well, how could he create the world in six days? <laughs> if he's God, why not? I mean, that's to me, sometimes these arguments are simple to me. I mean, if He is God, if He is the Almighty, six days, six minutes, six inches, it doesn't really matter. God can do it. So it was, He said, that the mighty, the Almighty God, the everlasting Father is going to be here in our midst. And it was because of that, it says in John, that the Jews wanted to kill Him because He said... You call yourself God's son, making yourself equal with God. Yes, everlasting God. That's who I am. But yet coming in such a different way, as, as Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Interesting choice of words. He was pierced for our transgressions. 700 years, he's talking beforehand, he's saying, how did he know that he would be pierced, that his hands and his feet and his side would be pierced? It's just a coincidental choice of words. Or was God painting a picture in advance and saying, this is what he's going to do? Why did I start this whole series by talking about or reading from John's opening prologue? Well, for three very simple reasons. Number one, that the birth of Jesus was foretold from before eternity. He foretold it. It wasn't something that just simply happened. God said, this is what's going to happen. One of the things he said through Isaiah is that I tell you what's going to happen before it happens so that when it does happen, you will know that I am the one who have done it. God says, I I foretell what's going to come. That's why we have not just the book of Genesis, but we also have the book of Revelation. And that the book of Revelation is not a mystery book. It's not speaking of some past historical event. It's speaking of what is going to come. That's what he says. I'll tell you the things that will happen hereafter. I'm telling you about what the future is going to be like. And you and I will peer into a book like that and go, "Uh, let me see, uh, long hair, breastplates of iron, beetles, creatures coming out of the earth, scorpions with stings in their... And, you know, as, as Salem Kirban said back in his book when he wrote in 1966, clearly a prophecy of the Beatles. Electric guitars, long hair, you know. Their music stings on your ears when you listen to it, you know. I'm serious. He wrote a book, put it in there, sold a lot of them. I doubt he's still putting that theory out. He's probably moved on to Def Leppard or something like that. I don't know. But it's important we understand that God foretells. He speaks in advance of what is coming. But secondly, it's the result of a foreplan. He, he foretells what He has planned. In other words, I say it and therefore I do it. God is not just simply predicting the future. He is outlining what the future is going to be. That history is not something that unfolds and God as a spectator uh, like you and I feel that we are doesn't sit back and watch it take place as it happens. My wife and I are watching this uh, uh, Spanish language series, subtitles, uh, and uh, it's this mystery thing and, you know, espionage and all this kind of exciting stuff that I get off on. And as we were sitting there watching last night, and it's a very tense moment as, you know, the, the, the hero is, is doing his deed and may get caught by the bad guys, and he's sneaking around and doing what he's doing. And, and I looked at my wife and I said, I bet you anything it's a close call, but he escapes. And she said, how do you know? And I said, because there's 11 more weeks in the series. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can foretell the future. I can see the signs. I'm, I'm really sharp that way. My wife also says it makes me a very unfun person to watch things with. But, but God wants to know that this is not something that just happened and I was making half and corrective measures or as Lucato said, stop gaps. Whoops, Adam sinned. What are we going to do now? But God said, no, I laid this out from the very beginning. I foreplanned it. Doesn't mean that He made people do what they do. 
He just says, I knew what was going to happen, and I structured everything to come in for a landing just as I had foreplanned. And so I think what's more important, even in application of all of that, is that the same thing becomes true of you and me, that God says He foreknew you. It's interesting, when the, in the video there, Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, been a very important passage in my wife and I's life for many years. But that whole idea of God saying, you know, I know my plans that I have for you. What is the value in, in studying biblical prophecy? What is the value of not only looking at what God said would happen, and, and it did happen just as He said it would happen, but also to look at things that He says yet are to come? And we don't have to be brilliant to look around at the world we're in and saying, gee, this stuff is starting to look very biblically familiar, right? But why is that? So that we can run around and say, I know what's going to happen, and you don't, you know, and, or, or we're just kind of this elite class of, we know. No. It's so He, that you and I can know that God foreknows us. And he says, those I foreknew in Romans 8, 28, those whom I foreknew, the same I did predestined to be conformed to the image of my son. We get screwed up in that word predestined. We get, you know, as if God suddenly has made us robots and we have no choice. That's not even how the Greeks used it. It's not how they understood it. Certainly not what's implied. What he's simply saying is when I knew from before eternity, that the day would come you would trust me and give your life to me. I put in place a plan, and I am fulfilling that plan in your life, even as we speak, so that you can know and I can know that regardless of what circumstances my life is in at this moment, it's part of the plan. I know you're going to say, but no, I disobeyed and I rebelled and I sinned, and yeah, and God knew that too. There's nothing you've done or will do that will ever surprise God and go, gee, I didn't see that one coming. He saw it coming. He understood it. And he says, I've already prepared a path of escape. I've already prepared whatever needs to happen because I, the moment you trusted me, the moment you believed in me, because I foreknew you, I purposed that your life would come to an expected end an end that would bring you, Jeremiah said, hope and a future. God looked at humanity before humanity even existed and said, I need to create them with an opportunity to make a choice, to choose to love me or choose not to love me because no relationship has any reality to it without that choice. But I know who will make that choice, and I, I know who won't. And for those, and for both extremes, there is a plan. One is called heaven, one is called hell. It's a plan. You may not like that plan, especially if you're making the other choice. Then especially if you're one of those who don't recognize Him and you don't receive Him, it's not an not exciting future. No, the future that is exciting is for those who have chosen to believe. Those who have chosen to trust, those who have chosen to follow. Because I foreknow you, I have pre-designed a future for you. 
that will be glorious and wonderful. So some of us, you know, woke up this morning and uh, we looked at where our lives are at and saying, you know, there are so many things in my life that I didn't think would be there at this point in my life. You know, we have disappointments, we have disease, <laughs> we have we have disasters. We, we, have all, we also have all sorts of dysfunctionality. And, in, and our tendency is to come to God and say, where are you, God, in the midst of all of this? And all I can say is as the disciples were in the upper room asking the same questions and more importantly saying, we are so terrified of what's going to happen to us next. How do we get out of this mess we're in? And how surprised they were to discover God had a plan. And the plan didn't come through the front door. It just says that Jesus appeared in their midst. How did he do that? Well, if you send me $29.95. (laughs) Again, I default to my best answer. It's a God thing. God can do stuff that you and I can't. Did their perspective change? Did they reframe the picture of Jesus with a different image? Had he suddenly changed dramatically from what they anticipated he was? You can count on it. And I'm saying to you that you and I oftentimes think that our perceptions determine what is real. Well, in fact, when we see what is real, our perception changes. It's just the opposite. And what God said is, I want you to understand that my son did not something. He wasn't somebody who just became the son of God in the process of doing all the right things. He wasn't some kind of freedom fighter, as liberation theologists say, or some kind of martyr, as some might present him, as a a, a Jewish form of shahid. He was none of those things. What he was... He was God who came for a purpose, and that purpose was to die on the cross to pay for your sins so that if you would believe on him, not only would your sins be forgiven, but in his resurrection, you might be resurrected with him and know that your life is not a series of consequential accidents, but your life is divinely designed to fulfill the path and the place that God wants you so that every moment, though not pleasant, is a teachable moment. Every situation is a growing situation, and everything that happens in my life has a purpose, even the ugly, painful, hurtful things, has a purpose that God allows because nothing touches my life except it be through the hands of God first. And that's when we begin to relax, and that's when we begin to become confident because God has foreknown you. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds, Lord, any place where there's a blockage in, our, in us, Lord, even if it's a, a heart of resentments or issues and stuff that just blocks us, Lord, from being able to experience the full circulation of your Holy Spirit in our life. God, remove those things. Take the scales off of our eyes Lord, unwrap the hands that are bound and let us begin to live in the fullness that you have called us to. 
whether we believe you or not, you still remain faithful. You said you can't deny yourself. You still remain the truth, and everything you said is true, whether people accept or reject it. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us first to recognize who you are, really. I even pray that for my brothers and sisters here this morning who may have had a rather occluded, very narrowed, limiting view of Jesus, that he's good for some things but not other. He's the Christmas Jesus, all eight pounds, six ounces of him. That God, you would just begin to expand our minds. And I know that that means that you may have to blow some things up in our lives in order for us to believe that you can do greater that you can do exceeding abundantly above and beyond all that we think or ask. God, I pray you'd remove that fear from us and that we would just simply say, Lord Jesus, I want to recognize you for who you really are and I want to receive you, that you are very God of very God. And I pray for any here this morning who don't know you, Lord, who have never made that surrender, that today would be the day in which they would do Grant us your grace in this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. As we continue on, as per usual, we're going to just take a little time to continue worshiping the Lord. And uh, we always invite you to partake of the elements of communion if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, because this is not just empty symbols here, or just this is not just bread and wine. This is, uh, this, these are symbolic of of what Jesus did, that before he ever was arrested and, and, and taken and imprisoned and beaten and crucified and even died, before any of that happened, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's going to be given for you. This cup is my blood that's going to be poured out for you, my life that's going to be shed, that your sins may be forgiven and that you might be in relationship with God. And Paul said, do as often as you do that, do it in remembrance of that reality. It's always an objective expression of what's taking place, hopefully, on the inward parts of our hearts. If you don't know Jesus Christ or you've drifted far from him, I would just invite you to, to pray even now that, that he would come into your heart and that he would take your life. That if you came with a family or friend, uh, talk to them about it. Or if you're the family or friend, then you talk to them about it. You bring up the topic. But that conversation needs to happen. Jesus said, if you'll acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. If you've just been away from him, or if you just realized this morning that, gosh, I been going through these motions, but I've really stopped believing. It's a great day to just say, Jesus, this Christmas I'm going to celebrate your birthday, not mine. So I encourage you to come. We'll be available up here in front to pray with you. Whatever the need, whatever the issue, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, because we know that prayer invites the power of God to move into the situations in our life and is transformational. So join with us.